0: If they're expressing to us some emotional reaction to what we've done, what are do we have obligations to them or should we feel some sense of obligation? What's what
1: should be what should be our response?
0: I'm asking the class one morning about what we owe people when we wrong them.
1: I do believe that we have a sense of obligation because going back to the study of restorative justice and how the community can be portrayed as something like a spider web and each connection between the members of the community constitutes a strand of that web. So when a violation occurs, when you hurt a person, you break that connection and you have to reconnect, so to speak. So when you violate a trust, when you violate a person, when you violate a moral code, you are thereby being a a member of society, being a member of the community, you are thereby obligated to make right. And if you're really, really in touch with your humanity, That's the conclusion that you're going to come to, that you have to make right. That what you did was wrong, and you have to make right to the most degree possible.
0: Mustafa is like a lot of incarcerated people in his desire to make right. And he and others wish that their victims knew that. So you think the victim's healing will be enhanced if they know that you've, you've recognized the harm
2: and you are trying to atone? Yeah, I mean, I think of Anthony in, in a, his um, situation. The mother of his victim or whatever wasn't, and she didn't really seem like it was like, you're a monster, you're this, you're that, and everything else. She was kind of like, you know, we, we accept you or whatever. Or, you know, we we understand her. that just shows, uh, it just shows compassion. It's like, yeah, yeah, you were a kid. You were a dumb kid. You messed up. You caused something very, very big. We get that, but we also understand that you were a kid and our son was a kid, and he was he could have been in your shoes easily. It's better that we see you grow into a mature man, a productive man, than for you just to go to prison and just run away. Does that resonate with you, Anthony? That's my story. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. I mean, my victim's family said they didn't want me to get this time. That's like, that came out of their mouth at sentencing. They said they felt it was an injustice that I was getting 25 to life at that age. Uh, but you know, it's a mandatory minimum in this state. But uh, I took something from them that could never be given back. But obviously somehow on their end, through that process, they healed on their own. And then being able to express what they expressed to me in the courtroom later on many years in life when I was able to reflect upon
0: that, it, it helped me heal. And today, I mean, would, you, would it be your hope that, that they somehow know? Absolutely. Is there, is there any mechanism for no, you to convey to them anything not. about who you are today? No, not until they come to my parole hearing.
4: If they can come, if they're still alive. I mean, I don't know.
0: In our last episode, we explored the consequences of our adversarial criminal justice process, which pits the state against the alleged offender. We also explored the consequences of our highly punitive sentencing structure which demands very long prison terms as retribution for a conviction. But what if we had a system that was more restorative in its approach? What if we had a system in which victims and prisoners had more consistent and constructive dialogue with one another? What if we encouraged prisoners to take accountability not by sitting in a cell, but by working hard to understand the consequences of their mistakes. This is Making Amends. I'm Steve Herbert. I used a rare degree of access to the Oregon State Penitentiary to explore how many prisoners deal with the past and how they search for a way to atone. In this episode, I want to explore how a restorative justice approach might work differently than our current punitive one. I want to consider whether both victims and perpetrators might benefit from communicating with one another, and whether we can create environments where convicted criminals more actively assume accountability for the wrongs they committed. Episode 8, We're Genuinely Trying to Repair That Harm.
1: There's obligation on part of the criminal justice system in the state to facilitate something that can give the victim an opportunity to hear the offender. As we speak right now, it's all about retribution.
0: When Mustafa suggests a turn away from retribution and toward victim-offender dialogues, he's making a case for an approach commonly labeled as restorative justice.
5: So restorative justice is basically the idea that rather than focusing on guilt and legal punishment, one should focus on the harm that occurred and what can be done to remedy it as much as is possible.
0: This is Catherine Beckett, my colleague at the University of Washington in Seattle.
5: So the focus shifts from the, the legal question of guilt and rather to what what happened, how has that affected the person's been harmed, and what can the person who caused the harm do to make things better? And so it, it lends itself to a very different kind of intervention and, and response to wrongdoing.
0: The individuals that I've met in Oregon, they talk a lot about just the initial framing of their case as the state of Oregon against them and the ways in which that sort of structures the way they think about what they've done and what, at least in the immediate term, how they have to somehow defend themselves against the state. So it sounds like restorative justice kind of redefines the way the whole thing is understood from the very beginning.
5: Yeah, it sort of flips it on its head and says, don't participate in this process by protesting your innocence, but rather take responsibility, own up to what you did, really sit with what that meant for someone else feel that and then figure out with us you know what you can do to make things better it's a really different i think posture that it invites the person who caused the harm to be in in the in the process
0: so in some ways they're invited to embrace accountability rather than sort of defend themselves against that label
5: precisely and i think they pretty quickly get understand why that's good for them to take accountability, why that's helpful to other people and helps create peace and more resolution.
0: Steve agrees with the idea that the adversarial system did not encourage him to take accountability at the outset.
3: When you're going through trial, especially if you don't know
2: what's about to happen, the last thing you're really thinking about is emotional obligation when you're talking about. You're
3: thinking of us versus them. You're getting your discovery. You're seeing who snitched on you. Press press evidence. So you never think of any of that stuff. I never did, until way later in life. Until it was in late in my twenties. I don't know. you Get an empathetic
6: brain. I guess when you get older, you start to think like a little bit outside that box.
1: We think that most victims want revenge and vengeance, but a lot of them just want some answers just want the questions answered. They want their voice to be heard. They want a sense of empowerment. They want to come face to face and know why, you know? And uh, that's what sort of justice brings into the picture. And then some might say that by doing so, the perpetrator is getting off easy. I can assure you that there's many, many people who would rather do a prison sentence than come face to face with the person they heard and sit there and have to answer their questions because that's a very emotionally daunting situation
0: An emotionally daunting situation, perhaps, but one that members of my class would embrace. Do any of you imagine how, if you were able to tell your truthful story, that that might impact positively your victims? Yeah. Do you ever imagine what that conversation might be or look like?
4: I think the ability to have the option is what's important and what's powerful for the victims because some victims don't don't want to talk to you and their coping mechanism is hating you i mean everybody deals with things differently some victims want to know all got a billion questions and want to know and right now they don't have the ability to find out but i think just having the system in place where it's available is what will be so powerful and impactful for the victim's healing process just to know that, okay, maybe I am angry right now and I don't want, I ever want to see this bastard again. But then sometime down the road, they know they have the ability to say, you know
3: what, now I want to know. Just answering any unanswered questions that's just been lurking. Or just giving a new perspective of, of my thoughts of the crime. You know, I think that's important because they don't really know how we respond outside of the criminal justice mm-hmm. process. They don't know about the compassionate person. They don't know the story. They don't know... There's more to it than the the minutes that happened in the, in the in the actual crime that took their family member away. They don't know about who you are as an individual, and I think just understanding, giving them that part of humanity, can make a difference in their own hatred or just their understanding on why they hate you so much. And I just think they should, they deserve that. I would love the
2: chance to be able to sit down with uh, you know my victim's mom and dad, especially his dad. I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, they have a bunch of questions for me, some anger for me and whatever else that they may be feeling and whatnot, um, just to give them an the opportunity to understand why it took place. That it's not what the DA did. What the DA told you why it took place isn't really accurate. So this is why it took place or whatnot. Maybe they may want
3: to hear that, maybe they don't, but just to give them an the opportunity. We don't want to hurt the victims we don't want to like there's ways that we can we can do this i honestly believe that there should be more victims advocate groups and prisoners doing workshops i believe that because there has to be the education that there's some of us in here there's a lot of us actually who want to bridge that gap but we're afraid to build that bridge and how do we build that bridge
1: a lot of the men in here are frustrated because we don't have a platform to convey our apology.
0: So why would having your apology heard be meaningful to you?
1: For most of us, we're sitting here knowing that the people that we hurt are mad and upset and hurt and they think that we're never going to change and they think that we're just bad people and they think that there's nothing good going to come out of us. That, that's not the reality, that's not the that truth. We might have done something wrong in our lives, but that doesn't reflect who we are as a person. And ever, That's been a long time ago, and most of us have made strides of changes, to, but they don't know that.
0: Well, I mean, another way maybe understanding it, and tell me if this is wrong, that you feel a desire presumably to reconnect to the community, say, okay, I screwed up, I caused harm, I'm doing everything I can to atone for that, I would like to be recognized and, and, in effect, kind of welcomed back into the community of morally
1: responsible people. We do have that need. We do feel that way. Like, if they look up any of our names, none of the things that we accomplished over the past X amount of time is going to be mentioned. The only thing that's going to be mentioned is the most negative thing about us. You know, and it just, it just, it just. It doesn't sit right, knowing that that's what the world knows of us, you know?
7: It's about uh, two human beings or human beings sitting down and understanding and acknowledging a harm that's been done. And how has that harm been right? Like that violation and letting them know that I'm sorry. And not only am I sorry, this is what I've been doing to be actionable with with my sorry. This is how I'm doing my sorry. But that's a truer
0: measure of accountability in your view than just doing time. Yes. So, the men in my group would prefer to be held accountable through more than just doing time. For them, making amends means acknowledging the harms they've created and doing so as directly as possible, ideally with their victims. This, for them, is what it means to pursue restorative justice. This term, restorative justice, is an important one at the Oregon State Penitentiary. It's a catch-all phrase for a range of classes and programs. All of them run in the chaplain's area of the prison, up on the fourth floor. Steve is one of the newest members of the restorative justice community. So when did you start coming up here? I've kind of been up here. I've
3: taken a couple classes up here. So just kind of getting me around. And then different people have told me about what's going on up here. Actually, before that riot, I'd come up to a couple things
2: up here too for restorative justice. But uh, as far as this class,
0: recently. Interesting. So what's the attraction? Um,
2: I don't know, just to learn It seems like the most amount of change that's happening in this prison system Seems like it's more uh, Has more of a real life effect That's happening up here But up here it seems like they're trying to actually make a difference
0: And how do you see that?
2: Some of these classes and hearing what they're talking about And hearing like some of the professors up here um, Like I can see inside myself That I'm a completely different person than I was Or This is the only place I really found that like
0: Steve, Cameron has a history with racially defined prison crews. Both of these men are white and thus historically would not commingle with prisoners of color.
6: Everything in prison is defined by race um for whatever reason. Uh, Chow hall is racially segregated um you know who who you work out with has to be racially segregated who um, you live with um in the in the day rooms there's black chairs and white chairs and mexican chairs and you know um showers um at most prisons are racially segregated uh just every single little aspect is racially segregated and i just uh when i came in as a kid i really um i just drank the Kool-Aid on everything you know like, this is what we did all right this is this is what it is um really i just never questioned it before and when I, when i talk about um the moral um, aspects that you have to decide for yourself, that was such a big deal when I actually started questioning that. Like, why would I hate this guy or not, you know, do something with him just because, like, shouldn't I base it on his integrity as a man, on, like, who he is as a person, you know? And uh, I just started questioning everything. (laughs) And uh, I came up with my own answers. So,
0: like, the moral choice to judge someone based upon their race. Yeah. This led Cameron to find a different sort of community on the fourth floor. He recalled a moment when he was on the floor and fell into a conversation with two other prisoners and a Jewish chaplain.
6: I always had the community up here from the first day I came up here. They were very welcoming to me. And it's funny, I, uh, one day I was up here uh, just hanging out and I just remember like feeling a super strong sense of community and like camaraderie with them. And uh, I just found it funny, like it was rare that I ever found that on the yard, you know, but up here with the, with these guys who are seemingly, you know, uh, I'm a white guy there, uh, two black guys and a, and a, and a rabbi. And um, with them, I felt a strong sense of community and, you know, uh, purpose and uh, just a good, feeling, you know, and that was, I'm not going to say I never felt that on the yard, but I rarely, you know, that, that was a, a rare thing to, to find anywhere, but it felt good that I could still have that community and that that, that feeling, but in a positive action, while, while pushing positivity out there, I could still have that community.
0: The sense of positive community is widely shared.
1: I think most of that code, at least prison code, and uh, kind of sort of thrown out the door the moment you step into a sort of justice environment. And that's the power of that environment is that it enriches and it encourages you to cultivate your inner self and Mm -hmm. discover who you are and discover what you got in common more so than what you got different with other Mm -hmm. people.
7: We're all here to learn and build off each other. You know, We're here as a team mm-hmm. and we're here as a group trying to build and figure it out because none of us have it figured out. Mm-hmm. Not one of us in this room have it figured out. You know what I mean? But we're here to promote and empower each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the element that you very have to understand because that vulnerability is because you can be vulnerable because we're all trying to put ourselves at the mercy of vulnerability so we can actually be honest with ourselves. Hopefully, you walk away with something. I walk away with something. Is like, yeah, you know, I was able to be honest today.
6: And uh, I think a lot of it is just um, being able to identify with someone. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a lot of that's being close to them, having discussions. You know, letting little vulnerability come yeah. out. It's accepted. we let a little more come out. You mm-hmm. know, and just um, <laughs> you know, in this place where so many people are motivated to do negative things, yeah. we come together to be positive. Yeah. And that gives us a certain. Um camaraderie right there and community.
0: As Anthony pointed out, creating a community like this throughout a large institution like the Oregon State Penitentiary won't necessarily be easy.
4: Especially with a lot of the younger generation and sometimes old fools, certain things aren't cool. Changing isn't cool. Education isn't cool. And so that's a stigma attached to a lot of the stuff that we do in this room. It's like, oh, that ain't cool, because sometimes people feel uncomfortable because they've never been exposed to it, whatever the reason is, right? Uh, they'd rather play sports. That's cool. They want to go work out. That's cool. They would rather hang out and play dominoes. They feel that's cool. But when we can change the definition, so-called, of what's cool, because it's a different value system, then more people start getting interested in it.
0: Cameron believes that the key to changing the prison culture is to lessen the distance between the outside world and what he calls the kaleidoscope world of prison. Why the metaphor
6: of a kaleidoscope? Because it's twisted. (laughs) Nothing's right, you know. Uh, When you forget that there's something outside these walls, uh, this becomes a very uh, different place. And for a lot of years, I forgot there was things outside these walls. And that's when I became violent and animalistic and uh, had no empathy and everything else, because those were assets in here, you know. But the best way we can figure to change this into a more uh, transformative environment is to make it from the day you come in, you're thinking about the streets. You never forget about your daughter, about your nephew, about your girlfriend. You know, you, you always remember... That out there, and you're constantly working to make yourself the best you can be once you get there. But
0: how easy have we made it for people like Cameron to remember life on the outside? Has our addiction to incarceration allowed us to forget those we've locked up and to ignore the changes they've made? Can we learn to recognize ourselves and those we've confined to prison?
8: Think about the worst thing you've ever done, right? Maybe you betrayed a family member or let a friend down or something like that. One of these wrongs of everyday life.
0: This is Linda Radzik, a moral philosopher at Texas A&M University.
8: And think about the fact that most of our answers to what's the worst thing you've ever done aren't even crimes. And a lot of things that are crimes are a lot less serious than the worst things we've ever done to one another, right? So if you've, you know, let down a family member who's now passed on, a lot of us are in this same situation of needing to make amends, wanting to make amends, and tragically being unable to do it fully.
0: So I guess the, the thought experiment there is to, if we recognize the wrongdoing that we ourselves are capable of, then that makes us easier for us to imagine... <laughs> I guess, being in prison, for lack of a better way of putting it.
8: Right. And also to to imagine this experience of having done something that you can't take back. And now it's in the past. You can't go back and change the fact that you did that thing. And so hopefully if we think about what it would be to make amends for the wrongs all of us do in everyday life, and we can have a kind of sympathy for that as part of the human experience that criminals are also facing. Their wrongs are more severe, maybe, but it's not as if they're a different kind of creature than we are.
0: Sitting in that library on the fourth floor of the Oregon State Penitentiary each Tuesday morning, I did not experience myself in conversation with people who are different from me. If anything, I felt inspired by people taking an honest look at themselves and recognizing their imperfections. Unlike those of us on the outside, they are reminded daily about their worst mistakes. As easy as it might be to simply serve out their time and to sit around and complain about a criminal justice process that does not always treat them well, these men work to become the best version of themselves. So then, if I hear you correctly, then it takes a while. It takes a you time. have to be incarcerated, you have to get over your anger over the way in which the system has operated Maybe you got more time than you think is legitimate. I shouldn't say maybe you very likely got more time than you think is legitimate, and so the process- if I hear you correctly, the process of like really taking
3: responsibility is all the harder it's the harder, but I think is 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 that more important because you generally want to change like it's like it's not about the system more like okay, I got a bad shake at the system, but it's not about the system more it's about me. In my growth, in my change, what do I want? I ain't going to let the system keep me down. I'm going to grow. I want to branch out. I want to heal. I want to mature. So I just think that, I think that that's where it proves the resiliency of those who truly want to change.
0: And if that change does occur, do we not owe it to people like Theron to recognize that? Here's Linda Radzik again, acknowledging that wrongdoers do have an obligation to try to atone, but the rest of us have obligations as well.
8: If you have a moral obligation and I prevent you from fulfilling it, then I've blocked your being able to act the way a moral agent should. I've limited you in a way that damages your moral character, your being a moral being. Our interests in being able to fulfill our obligations are the core of what it is to be a human being. So to, to limit someone from making amends is to do a serious type of wrong to them.
0: It will likely not come as a surprise that Theron agrees with this.
3: If We're not received by the community that we've harmed, and we're genuinely trying to repair that harm, and then we're rejected by the community that we're trying to get back into, it sets us back. We're told that we should take responsibility. We've taken that. We're told that we should find ways to pursue something for ourselves in order to maintain some type of success. And then we're rejected by the society that tells us this. I think that would be a strong contradiction to the, the healing process.
0: This, then, might be what it fully means to make amends the wrongdoer recognizes the harm they've caused and seeks to make matters right by trying to be the best person they can, by trying to help others. And the rest of us recognize those efforts and work to welcome them back to our moral community. Because if they are trying to restore the moral fabric that they tore, don't we have an obligation to recognize that? So one last thing to think about. So ideally, if there's a, an offender-victim dialogue and everything goes well, in many people's view, the best possible outcome is that the victim offers some degree of forgiveness toward the offender. So I'm curious about, from your all's perspective, you know how important that is to you, the thought that you might be forgiven. If and also if you, if you if you if the possibility to be forgiven from by somebody on the outside is not a possibility. How important has it been to your growth to try to forgive yourself and to the extent that
3: you've worked on that sort of what does that look like? It's been important. It's been everything for me to try to forgive myself. I mean, that's if I can't forgive myself, then I can't really move on because I'm going to be stuck. But you have. I had to recognize that I did the wrong to be to forgive myself because what am I forgiving myself if I can't acknowledge that I've done anything wrong? I want to be forgiven from anyone else, but I don't think that it is necessarily the priority because some people might not forgive, you know? And if they don't forgive, does that, should I limit myself to that? acceptance of forgiveness? No, I forgive myself. I push forth. I try to put positive things in the, in the atmosphere and to the world, and, and that's what I can do. That's, all. That's, the, that's my effort. That's my struggle. You know, If they forgive me, then it can contribute to that motivation. It can contribute to that humanity, but I forgive them myself, and that's what's important. Then I can help people.
0: Making Amends is written and produced by me, Steve Herbert. Our production crew includes Jesse Beckett Herbert, Tyler Bonilla, Emma Embleton, and Daniel Gunther. Our website and marketing crew includes Nadra Fredge, Kate Borelli, and Liz Gardner. Music by Jesse Beckett Herbert and Tony Lefebvre. Our theme song was recorded at the Oregon State Penitentiary with Austin Clark, Chad Hamlin, and Mitch Lewis. Recording assistance at the penitentiary provided by Chad Hamlin. Learn more at our website, makingimmensepodcast.com. This is our last episode of Season 1. We have bonus episodes planned, so please subscribe so that you'll be aware of them. Also, stay tuned for information about future seasons. If you want to support our work, please do so through our website. Your contributions will help ensure our continued work examining aspects of our criminal justice process. This season was only made possible through the generosity and thoughtfulness of many people, not all of whom I have time to acknowledge. I did want to thank my transcription crew, which included Tina Guy, Eleanor Jones-Tuton, Manji Kaur, Mandy Sandhu, Anthony Stokes, and Toshi Yanai. Thanks for the constructive feedback from Bryce Ellis, Maya Enzi, Clara Manahan, Sabrina Page, Maida Rahman, Anika Steve, and Iris Wagner. Thanks to Tom Stiles for help with editing software and with recording our music. Thanks also to folks at the Oregon Department of Corrections and the Oregon State Penitentiary, especially Jennifer Black, Karuna Thompson, Avraham Pearlstein, and Sterling Cunha. And thanks, of course, to the students in my Tuesday morning class, Anthony Cameron, Mustafa Steve, Terrence, and Theron, along with Jonathan, Ben, Michael, Tim, Ernest, and Zach. Please spread the word about this podcast and provide us a rating and review. See you next time.